WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Filling in, for the, filling in this week for uh, editor and publisher Burl Schwartz. Uh, later on in the program, we're going to listen to a pre-recorded uh, interview uh, f- from our TV show this week with uh, Lansing School Board President Peter Spadafore. We're also going to check in with Terry Terry, who's the... Uh, co-founder of Message Makers in Old Town, who's uh, behind plans uh, for a new event this summer uh, in Old Town called the Grand American Fish Rodeo. We'll get some more details on what that's all about. Uh, We'll also check in with uh, local actor and director Michael Schockerbauer, who is directing uh, production Leaving Iowa at Riverwalk Theater. Uh, And it's also um, Michael's 100th local Theater production. So we'll talk to him about his time uh, and and what he's learned throughout the years. Uh, but first up on the phone with us now is uh, Lansing Police Department Captain Daryl Green. Uh, in this week's uh, City Pulse, we uh, introduce the LPD's new uh, cold case detective, who whose position came to be after a story last year in City Pulse. Uh, ex- ex- exposed some uh, at least disorganization when it com- came to handling uh, cold case records in the city. But uh, we're going to have Captain Green uh, sort of give us uh, the history on that um, and and what the department hopes to get out of uh, Detective Lee McAllister, who is a veteran with the department and, and brought with him a wealth of experience. But uh, Captain Green, thanks for being on City Pulse. Sure. Thank you very much, Andy. So uh, tell us about uh, how this, this position uh, became created and, and uh, what's transpired over the past year within the LPD to sort of emphasize uh, cold, case, uh, uh, cold case work. Well, I'll tell you this, Andy. I'm very excited about our new process. Uh, and I know that you guys did an article and um, uh, brought out some, some issues of concern. Uh, we cert- certainly invested in uh, that information and and went back to our department and uh, thought that we could do a better job as far as uh, how we invested our energy resources and so forth in investigating cold cases. Uh, so what we did was uh, we uh, formulated a plan, uh, and the plan really looks at how we systematically standardize this whole process of homicide investigation and how we catalog and inventory unsolved homicides, uh, just for the sake of uh, making sure that we uh, uh, assure uh, our citizenry that we're doing everything we can do. Uh, that, in turn, uh, created this whole position of a cold case investigator, uh, Detective Lee McAllister. He's a, a single investigator, and but at the same time, he works in conjunction with a host of uh, collaborative entities, uh, other departments, and so forth. Uh, so the mission of the cold case unit really is to investigate unsolved homicides through collaborative strategies uh, that obviously embrace new technologies. Uh, the technology is uh, ever-changing, 
and we're just trying to make sure that we create a situation of structured uh, unsolved homicides cases that uh, not only uh, look forward to new technology as uh, new science uh, you know formulates uh, plans and structures where we can uh, increase uh, the level of solving some of these cases. So we've definitely uh, created that structure, and we're very excited about it. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges for um, a detective working on, on these types of cases, some of which I think that are, are before the department date back uh, several decades? Yeah, that's an uh, interesting point. You know, first and foremost, homicide investigations are always difficult. Uh, they're never easy. Uh, they're arduous cases. Uh, in the case of a, a homicide case that's unsolved and it's 40 uh, to 50 years old, uh, it's even more complex, and they bring a host of different variables that make the, the case very difficult to solve. A lot of times the witnesses have left the area. Uh, some of the witnesses, you know, 30, 40 years uh, might be deceased. Uh, previous suspects, you know, might be deceased or have left the area. Uh, so it creates those type of issues. Also, you know, evidence, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were packaged differently. And so, you know, just the biological process of things uh, can't hamper an investigation. But, you know, we have a good uh, investigator. Uh, he's been investigating uh, crimes here at the Lansing area for nine years. Uh, and, and he's not in it alone. I mean, every detective that came before him and uh, all the detectives we have now, uh, you know, gladly assist him in every way possible. So we're doing everything we can do to just make sure we have a structured environment that embraces the new technologies that come out and also, uh, you know, make sure that uh, we never forget those unsolved cases. And sometimes people remember things. It might be 20, 30 years and, you know, a re-interview of a witness or something to that effect uh, might open a viable case lead. So we're just trying to make sure we do, we do everything correct uh, to create that environment to uh, uh, mitigate, you know, some of these cases as far as being unsolved. Mm-hmm. And uh, bringing a dedicated detective on uh, will obviously help you towards those goals. But uh, practically, how how much can can one detective really do given the challenges um, of of resources uh, for one, and also just the the difficult nature of these cases? Well, I think uh, one detective can do a lot. Uh, first and foremost, you know, this one detective uh, gives homicide victims a a voice. Uh, and really serves as an advocate for those that were tragically killed. Uh, so one detective uh, can, you know, obviously solicit uh, different partnerships and basically create what we call a cold case registry, meaning bringing all the cold cases together, uh, analyzing them, and creating this uh, triage scale of which, you know, in some cases uh, there's a technology out there, CODIS or DNA, uh, something to that effect that maybe can solve a particular case. Uh, and also, it just gives attention to those unsolved cases that have been silent uh, for decades sometimes, and uh, we're doing everything we can do, and uh, this is certainly something I'm excited about. And uh, we have some good detectives here at the Lansing Police Department. Uh, all of our detectives are trained very well and have a lot of experience. Uh, any one of them could have really did a good job as far as being a cold case investigator uh, this young man, uh, Detective Lee McAllister, showed a lot of passion because uh, a lot of these cases are very difficult. So we need someone 
when they find a new lead to be persistent with that lead and and track it down. But again, you know, uh, it's you know some of these cold cases, you know, really are, are resource driven, and you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, they can be very difficult in uh, reaching out to victims and you know family members and so forth and witnesses, tracking those people down to re-interview them. But we're doing everything we can do with one single investigator to build a partnership uh, that's collaborative with all types of other entities, Michigan State Police. Uh, we reach out to all the agencies in the mid-Michigan area. Uh, we have great relationships with the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and the Federal Bureau of Investigation and DEA. So we have a host of different databases that we can reach out, even when some of our you know, suspects previously or witnesses have left the area. So we're, we're using those collaborative uh, partnerships to uh, make sure our reach is nice and long, that we can uh, mitigate some of these cases that have not been solved. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we've got just under a minute left, but uh, if, if listeners either uh, want some more information about the cases before uh, the LPD, or if they might have some information, how can they uh, get that information from or to uh, the Lansing Police Department? Well, they can always go to uh, the City of Lansing's website, uh, www.lansingmi.gov, and go under the Police Department's station. We have a, a cold case website, uh, and Detective Lee McAllister, his picture is up there, and contact information, so they can always reach us uh, via Internet. Uh, and it has his uh, telephone information as well. Or they can always call the uh, non-emergency number for dispatch and 43-4600 and ask to speak to a cold case detective or any detective. Uh, you know, we're going to do the best that we can. And, uh, you know, we're very excited about this uh, new cold case investigator. And I appreciate the uh, the mayor's office and the chief of police uh, uh, assuring the public that, we're very concerned about, you know, unsolved homicides. All right, very good. Well, uh, Captain Daryl Green of the Lansing Police Department, thanks very much for being on City Pulse. Thank you very much, Andy. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Listening to City Pulse here on The Impact, I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, next up on the phone with us is local actor and uh, director Michael Schockerbauer, who uh, this uh, coming up is uh, going to be a part of his 100th uh, local theater uh, production uh, as he directs uh, Leaving Iowa at Riverwalk Theater. Uh, it starts on uh, Thursday and runs through Sunday, February 16th. Um, uh, more uh, details on showtimes and that uh, is available at riverwalktheater.com. Uh, but uh, uh, on, on the phone with us now, uh, Michael, uh, tell us about uh, you know your journey uh, from, from your first production to, to now your 100th. Well, if I tell you when my first production was, it gives away my age. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when I graduated from graduate school at Ohio State University, I lived in Westerville, Ohio, a suburb of Columbus, and was teaching school there, and I found out that there was a local uh, community theater. And I contacted them, showing an interest, and I told them as soon as I graduated and was finished, I would... uh, attend one of their meetings, and I did, and was welcomed with open arms, and I attended the first audition they had for their season and got cast. 
and that was in the fall of 1978, and um, I've been doing it ever since. And uh, what was that first production you worked on? It was called The Rainmaker, and it was at Curtain Players of Westerville, um, and uh, I did anywhere from three to eight shows a year after that. Uh, I took a little time off. The older I got, the uh, fewer shows I did. Right. Uh, so um, d- so now does uh, the, uh, I, you know, the production of, of a given show varies, uh, but is there, uh, you know, sort of a general uh, timeline for, for, you know, the amount of time you spend on a particular production? Well, it there is. Um, usually a book play I spend uh, approximately six weeks on. Um, I try to do seven if I can, if a uh, theater's calendar allows it, because I like to do table work for about a week before we ever get on our feet, where we just sit around and talk about the play, read the play, discuss how I work if people have not worked with me before and that sort of thing. Um, when I've done musicals, it's usually anywhere from eight to ten weeks because of uh, vocal preparations and choreography and uh, takes a little bit longer. But I'd say average of six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, uh, in, in, in Alan Ross's story today in City Pulse, uh, he says that uh, the the difference between shows you've uh, directed in and acted in is about uh, 60-40 uh, ratio. Do you have a preference uh, to either act or direct? You know, I've been asked that so many times, <laughs> and it, it, many different rewards come with each thing you do. Um, so it's a whole different uh, feeling, and, and uh, you get... When you're, when you're acting in a play, the audience, you know, the feedback and the relationship with the audience is unbelievable. But also when you direct a play, it's almost like uh, sculpting or painting. You're using those actors as your paint to tell the story. Hmm. And so it's a whole different, um, I always tell people, it seems like when a production is wonderful, the actors always get the accolades. And if it's bad that it's all the director's fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Michael, what have you uh, learned about yourself as, as an actor and as a director um, throughout uh, this time period? Um, probably the biggest thing is I was quite shy, and, and of course people that know me really well now would laugh to hear me say that, mm-hmm. um, but being able to develop a character that is unlike yourself and and discover things about yourself that you might not have learned any other way through the art form. And I, I found myself becoming more um, out there, being able to communicate and feel comfortable around new people. And so I would say it kind of brought me out of my shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also learn a lot about the human condition and how I relate to that and, and how relationships work. It's almost like a psychology class. Uh, when I taught school, some of my fellow teachers asked me how I was able to go and rehearse for three hours a night and then come into school and teach all day. And I said, if I didn't have the therapy of doing the theater, I wouldn't be able to come in and teach all day. Yeah, right. So it's, it was a nice um, hobby, a vocation for me. 
um, I found myself interested in it in high school. You know, I did the class plays, but I didn't really know that I was able to do it well until I got involved as an adult and into community theater. So I owe a lot to the joy I've had in life to community theater. Hmm. Uh, do you have a uh, particularly memorable uh, show or performance? Well, I, I don't know if I should say I'm fortunate or unfortunate. <laughs> I did three of the four uh, tuna shows that are part of the Greater Tuna series, and those were quite an actor's um, nightmare in some respects, but quite an acting exercise and a growth experience because you played all these multiple characters, just two actors play, you know, um, 20 to 22 different characters depending on which script you're using. Mm -hmm. And those were very memorable for me, uh, mainly because I was able to accomplish it. Um, As far as a director, I got the pleasure of directing To Kill a Mockingbird a couple of years ago, and and that was a play that's always intrigued me um, as a teenager and as an adult, and I was very fortunate to to get to direct To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, Michael, what uh, drew you to the uh, Lansing area after spending uh, uh, several years down down in Ohio? Um, I... After I retired from teaching, I uh, went to work for the airlines as a flight attendant for a couple of years, and I was based in the Detroit area, so I moved up here, um, and then while I was flying, I realized I couldn't do my theater work. So I resigned after a couple of years and went back to doing the theater work, and that was in the Detroit area, and then I came to East Lansing with... um, inheritance of a home and we're here and loving East Lansing and the Lansing area and prior to moving here I checked out all the different theater opportunities and um, my first experience here locally was about uh, just a little over a year ago I was in August Osage County at Riverwalk Theater that was my first local mm-hmm. um, and uh... yeah, Lansing, uh, you know, people people say Lansing has a, a you know very strong uh, local uh, theater community here. Um, I, I wonder, you know, how how Lansing has is stacked up to to other communities where you've been, um, and, and also, you know, during during uh, I, I guess tough tougher economic times for some. How how can local uh, uh, community theater uh, remain strong? Well, I think the people that I find the most successful in in any community theater, or I've done uh, some semi-professional theater as well, and and they basically have to peruse their audience, know what's going to bring in an audience, but also provide enough opportunities to attract the talent pool that you need. Um, but I think being willing to learn and grow, the, the theaters that I've come across over the years that were somewhat failing or going down the tubes were ones that weren't willing to learn and reach out to other community theaters, other theater artists in the area, and, and provide learning opportunities for their membership. Um, so I think 
theaters that really want to survive need to do all those things. They need to attract an audience. They need to attract an acting and directing and talent pool. And they need also to provide learning opportunities for those that are interested in learning mm-hmm. and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, with economic times, I would think, it's a shame that it's not, but I would think that community theaters should be thriving the best because their ticket prices are so reasonable compared to professional theaters. And I think there's a stigma there that, oh, it's just community theater. It's not worth seeing. Whereas some of my best theater in my lifetime I've seen at community theaters. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a stigma we have to get over and also provide those previous opportunities I was speaking of. Sure, sure. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, what, uh, you're gonna, you've uh, decided to uh, direct uh, Leaving Iowa uh, as your 100th show. Uh, what can you tell listeners uh, about this uh, production? Well, it's, uh, it's a comedy about family vacations in a nutshell, but there's a lot more poignancy to it than that. Um, Don Browning is a, a writer, and his father had passed away three years before the present time period in the play and he's visiting his mother and his sister and it's his nephew's birthday and while they're there they discover dad's ashes three years later after he had passed away and decides that this was the opportunity he needed to find a resting place or a place to place his father's ashes and in the course of the play he relives many of their family vacations um about how his dad loved to travel. Um, dad, who's played by Mike Stewart, is plays a wonderful balance between the kid that's in Every Dad as well as the man in Every Dad that thinks he's making the best choices for his family because he loves them so much. And sometimes those choices aren't always what the kids want, but what Dad wants for his kids. Um, Joe Bauman plays Don, Um, the son that's trying to find a place for his dad's ashes. Uh, It's a very, very, very strong cast. Um, The playwrights offer uh, different scenarios that you can cast the show. You can cast anywhere from six people to 23 people, and I'm using 11. Um, There are four family members, Mom, Dad, Sis, and Don, and the other... Uh, characters, uh, actors play multiple roles, anywhere from one person, uh, one actor is even playing, portraying six different characters. But he, in the course of the play, like I said, he, he has these flashbacks of all of his family vacations and every type of episode you can think of, anyone that's ever been on a car trip whatsoever, even if it's a day trip to grandpa and grandma's versus a four-week trip across the country. Everyone has experienced these things that these kids are going through and these parents are going through. Um, And some of my most memorable memories from childhood are my family trips that I went on with my family. And so the script appealed to me immediately, and it's very well written, a lot of humor, and yet some poignancy involved, too, uh, some tender moments. Um... But everyone in that audience will be able to as- associate to at least one event in that play. 
All right, excellent. Well, uh, that is uh, Leaving Iowa. It opens tomorrow night, Thursday, at Riverwalk Theater uh, at 7 p.m. If you're interested in going, uh, it runs through February 16th. Information can be found at riverwalktheater.com. We've been speaking with uh, Michael Schockerbauer, who's going to be directing Leaving Iowa, and it's also his 100th production as a local uh, community theater actor and director. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for being on City Pulse. Thank you so much. We appreciate it and hope people come out and enjoy the show. You're welcome. You're listening to Impact Exposure on listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly Newspaper. Uh, next up on the phone with us is uh, Terry Terry, who, uh, uh, for anyone who has uh, seen or been involved with any any of the arts going on uh, in Lansing, and particularly Old Town, will, will know of our next guest. But uh, Terry, thanks uh, for being on City Pulse. Oh, happy to do so today on this great Michigan day. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, we've got you here to talk about uh, an event that uh, you're closely involved with that's going to be taking place in the summer months that I think we can all sort of uh, uh, get excited about this time this time of year, the, the Grand American Fish Rodeo. Uh, I, got a, I got this press release yesterday, uh, I think it was yesterday or Monday, in, <laughs> in my email inbox and just wondered uh, what the heck this was. Uh, but Terry, tell, tell us about uh, this event and how it came together. Well, um, how much time have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an idea that you know, emerged out of early days of um, creative things going on in Old Town, even before we did Jazz and Blues Fest. Uh, we did a thing called the Snake Rodeo, but but it's changed quite a bit since then, and it really just reemerged. It was kind of even off the back burner in conversations with um, Lee Lackey from the CVB and some conversations with them about things that we could do to really showcase, you know, what's particularly great about Michigan and Lansing, what are the highlights of our state, and... Um, the notion is kind of, it's got some whimsical and wackiness to it, some whimsy and wackiness, but, um, mm-hmm. and to get your attention, you know, fish rodeo, those words don't seem to go together normally, but we looked at, you know, what goes on in different places, like, you know, Texas is known for cowboys and rodeos, but Michigan, we've got lakes, rivers, streams, you know, we've got a lot going on with boating and fishing, and, um, and but San Antonio, Texas has got a you know great down, you know, billion-dollar industry going along that little canal they have in San Antonio. And we've got such a wonderful river here in Lansing. Why don't we try to do something different? So this is a competition-based event that is being put together. MICA, the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art, is serving as the catalyst uh, to bring people together and to facilitate the branding and promotion and red tape and all that, uh, working, working with the city on it. But... It's um, an event that many different partners are coming together to produce, and we intend to have a boat show and boat parade, um, cooking competitions that deal with like Michigan fish, mm-hmm. um, casting contests, fishing contests. We're going to be able to stock the river with fish. It's looking like that's all coming together, so that's going to be pretty cool. Um, 
and other fun competitions involving the arts, um, you know, poetry and um, music. There'll be music, of course. We're going to have you know concerts as well. We have maybe a dozen ethnic acts already committed to perform um, pieces that relate to their culture in terms of topics of you know uh, boating, water, you know fishing, and and, and their. Uh, in their culture, so we're really tying everybody together and giving something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, and, uh, and we have uh, uh, Pure Michigan supporting us. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources is supporting us. The City of Lansing is a partner in this. And it's you know this is going to be this summer we will test the waters, get our feet wet, and you know how to make this all happen. Yeah. Um, so it, it it sounds like uh, in Alan Ross's story today in City Pulse that uh, you have some some pretty grand plans for expanding it uh, if all goes well this first year. Well, I did. I'll be okay. I'm embarrassed. I didn't read City Pulse yet. <laughs> yet. I've been so busy with work. That's I, okay. So you have to refresh me on what. Well, uh, he he points out that uh, you know you're you're looking at possibly five thousand people the first year, um, perhaps uh, you know eventually luring uh, tens of thousands of people downtown. Right. There's no reason that we can't. We've got a great downtown and an incredible river, and that's what I forgot to mention. So we've got this great river that really could be developed more. I'm surprised that just there aren't tons of boats on that river all the time and people on them because it's gorgeous if you go up and down that river. There's Metro Marinas. They've got their um, little pont taxi taxi thing that they do. Um, but there's great opportunity. So we think this will bring attention to the river. We'll have we have lots of educational sessions. The, the Red Cross is going to help with that. The Michigan DNR is going to help with that. They'll be you can you can register and get your fishing license, you know, on site things like that. Um, but as far as numbers go, that's tough. You know, we, we, sure. we're gonna, we want to, this year is the time to try to get as many people out and to see how it goes and, as I say, get our feet wet and how to run a, a river event. We've done very successful things with Jazz and Blues Fest in Old Town, and we can, you know, transform this part of the city. Uh, Adato Park's a great venue to do events. Uh, the river adds another level of complexity to it. So, But our goal, there's no reason that we couldn't draw lots of people. I mean, the people, you know, People that are into boating, fishing, and so forth are we have like one in ten people in the state own a boat. Hmm. Think about it. the numbers are enormous. Wow. So you know, if we put the right programs together that will both entertain and we do want to have competitions. Like my favorite one that we've come up with is the uh, the one that got away, the <laughs> liars contest. <laughs> so we're looking for somebody to give us five thousand dollars. We're thinking five thousand would be the right. As a prize to give away to the biggest, I don't, I don't know what words I should be able to use on air, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the biggest liar. Let's just put it that way. All right, great. Well, this is the uh, the the first, the inaugural Grand American Fish Rodeo. It's scheduled for June twelfth through fourteenth uh, at Adato Riverfront Park and, and various other locations. Uh, downtown along the Grand River. Uh, there's a website, grandamericanfishrodeo.com. I presume uh, listeners can get more information on the event there. Correct, correct. Yeah. All right, excellent. Well, uh, Terry, we've got uh, just about a minute uh, left, and while I've got you uh, on the phone, what can you uh, tell us about the latest going on at the uh, Michigan Institute uh, for Contemporary Art? Oh, well, this Sunday, an event not to be missed. It's our annual Burning Desires 
poetry event. It's an afternoon of love poetry, erotic and otherwise. And we have a great lineup of poets. We have some nice refreshments, you know, and things like that. And um, uh, doors open at noon. By about 12.30, we'll do our, our first set of poetry, <clears throat> take a short break, and then for more refreshments, and then uh, do the, the second set. And it's, if you like words, this is an event not to be missed. It's really it's one of my favorite things that we do. And it's a nice intimate setting at the Micah Gallery. There's a nice show there right now as well. And uh, I really would encourage people to come out. And uh, it's donation-based, so it's not a big deal. You know, the, no, no big cost, but bring a date. All right. Very good. Uh, well, Terry Terry uh, of uh, Message Makers and the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. Uh, he's also leading uh, the organization uh, behind the, the inaugural Grand American Fish Rodeo that's uh, coming to Lansing this summer. Thanks uh, for being on City Pulse. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, managing editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly. Uh, next up in the program is our uh, our pre-recorded interview with Lansing School Board President Peter Spadafore, who was on uh, City Pulse Newsmakers uh, TV show last week. That episode can also be found at LansingCityPulse.com. The video of that. Uh, but uh, let's uh, let's listen to that interview now. This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. Why did Bridge Magazine find the Lansing School District is not even in the top 500 of its rankings? What about uh, not uh, deciding to privatize busing? What's going to happen to Eastern High School? Those are some of the questions we're to be asking our guest today. He is the newly elected president of the Lansing Board of Education, Peter Spadaforce. Peter, welcome to City Pulse Newsmakers. Thanks, Pearl. Pleasure to be here. And Andy Belaskowitz. Uh, Peter, let's start with um, Eastern High School. Uh, of course, there's been talk for a long time that uh, it might not survive as a high school. Uh, first of all, is it... Uh, is still unlikely to be around, say, 10 years from now? Well, we've been looking at some recommendations from our facility task force and talking with the superintendent and sort of the looking, looking ahead to our financial projections and population projections. And we just don't have the population or the financial resources to sustain three large comprehensive high schools. We made some effort uh, two years ago to bring in 7th and 8th graders into the high school. Um, but we're not sure. We're in that period of time now where we're reevaluating that plan. There was, there was a year where we were supposed to pause and take a look to see if that was doing exactly what we had hoped it would be doing. And um, we're, we're taking a serious look at all of our options, but I would say probably 10 years from now you'll you, we won't see the, the same number of comprehensive high schools, and Eastern High School is obviously always being considered for closure when that conversation and the thinking, up. I gather, is to ex- expand, possibly expand Patton Gill Middle School? That's one of the options that's been talked about. Um, when I got elected, we kind of talked about the need for taking a look at all of our facilities and um, evaluating our needs and take, um, refreshing the old ones, maximizing the new ones. And there aren't very many new ones in the Lansing School District. Patton Gill is one of those. 
and Pattengale sits on a lot of real estate that could be developed into more school building space to allow for a high school there that um, encompasses um, you know, a smaller high school within that high school, as we talked about a little bit in the media and the facilities report um, as it pertains to a public-private partnership, perhaps in the biosciences or technology, things like that. So Pattengale is definitely an option, but right now there is no plan necessarily. Where we've asked the superintendent to put together a three- to five-year strategic plan to give to us in March, and then from there the board will accept, reject, change, uh, do nothing. You know, there's, there's always the option right. as well. Um, and hopefully we'll have something solid by this summer that we can r make a recommendation to let the community know what's coming for the rest of the facilities changes. Preservationists are concerned about the future of that uh, large building, rather ornate building inside, sure. <coughs> although it has declined. Uh, maintenance hasn't been, uh, I'm sure, as high as anyone would like it to be. Right. Uh, should they be concerned uh, about the future of that building? Well, it's my hope. Uh, you know, our primary mission is to educate the 12,000 students in the Lansing School District, and that's what uh, every decision we make should have that as number one. How does this serve the students? But as a you know resident of the of the community and someone who's been here my whole life, I really do want to see something done to preserve our history as well. Now, whether that is Eastern High School as a as an educational facility or some sort of, you know, we've seen a lot of um, corporations and, and companies come in and purchase old school buildings and, and rehab them into really uh, quite wonderful facilities. Um, you know, the Armory is one example of an old, old facility that's been turned into something quite beautiful. In fact, I went there accidentally this morning, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had yeah. a chance to tour it again. The, but other, old the other old Armory, because this one is not particularly well uh, maintained. But, you know, there are <laughs> options out there, and um, I would hope that the preservationists that do have those concerns um, c can work together with the school board and um, you know the facilities task force folks and the administration to try and come up with viable options. Simply saying we can't let that building be empty is not a viable option. It, it, we need we need suggestions. We need solutions, and I, you know we're happy to entertain all those solutions. But as a, again, there's no concrete plan yet that Eastern High School is. is Closing, it's it's one of those things that's always going to be talked about, and it's a it's a realistic option, but it's not something that's solid. You know, being elected president of the school board doesn't mean I get to rule by fiat, and this is going to be a group decision and made by the school board with a lot of input. Uh, but as president, I do plan on having a lot of community input sessions over the next six months to hear concerns, hear suggestions, hear solutions, and talk about our plan when the plan is developed. Uh, and of course, uh, that if it is an Eastern, then it would be either Everett or Sexton. Sure. And I guess they could have a big get the, the football teams together and fight sure. it out. The, <laughs> the winner gets to keep his school. Certainly, we're not suggesting any type of Hunger Games style uh, competition <laughs> for the school, but we're going to take a look at strategic long-term needs. This is not a urgent problem that you know came up yesterday. This is something that the school. School boards have been talking about for the better part of 15 years. What do we do with our, you know, secondary schools? What do we do with our high schools? And we would like to think that we're building on the conversations that have been had over those years, and this will be just another step in that process. So we'll be doing this deliberatively, with some strategic, um, so strategic planning in mind. So it's not just a um, 
dollars and cents solution. In fact, dollars and cents, this is the first time it's come up. I'm not, we're not talking, you know, how do we save money with schools? We just don't have the population to sustain three high schools, three large high schools like this anymore. Um, and our students deserve the best, and um, I hope that we can give that to them in the form of facilities as well. All right, Andy. Well, speaking of dollars and cents, last week the school board shelved uh, some plans to privatize busing. Um, <coughs> if I understand correctly, it was uh, the administration reported that there could have been upwards of $5 million saved over five years going with this. Uh, those numbers were disputed. Uh, can you tell us uh, what happened with those plans and why the board didn't take any action on those? Sure. Well, um, last week we did not vote on the issue. Two weeks ago we tabled the issue to consider at that special meeting. When the motion was made to bring it off the table, um, there was no support for it. So the school board did not even get a chance to vote on it. Um, we didn't have discussion at the board level that week. We did the week before. We had quite a bit of discussion, quite a bit of public input. But what that lack of support signified to me was that it was not the decision that the school board was comfortable making. You know, if there was even another person willing to second it, we could have had a further discussion. But, you know, there are nine members on that board and only one made motion, no one was able to, willing to second. So we weren't ready to make that decision. That was not the board, uh, um, the board did not view it as the best decision. So as a school board, we're charged with taking a look at all options, and this option is joining the consortium. A lot of the districts in the intermediate school district have joined that consortium. We told the superintendent um, two years ago, to, uh, about a year and a half ago rather, to explore that consortium. She brought it to us. It wasn't the time then because we hadn't had enough you know, time to give the current employees the time to bid on it. Um, there we, we were joining the consortium when the bid wasn't open, so there was no actual savings at all. It was just changing the way we did business. Um, so this year we, we had another year to take a look at it, get in on the bid with, with the ISD, and they ended up choosing Dean Transportation to do the, to do the busing for this consortium. Um, but it's, um, we looked at that option and decided it wasn't what was best for Lansing. A lot of that savings assumed not purchasing new buses. So we have a fleet that, much like Bro mentioned with our facilities, has not been maintained to the levels we were used to. We did purchase 10 new buses a few years back, but we have over 65 buses. So we've got to take a look at that aging fleet and decide how do we replace that over time if we're not going to send it out to Dean Transportation to manage and take care of. So that was the largest savings was coming from not buying new buses. So we have to take a look now as a school board, do we want to start investing in our fleet? And also transportation has been one of those issues that comes up you know, every six months for the school board. It's, you know, their buses are late, um, kids are not coming home on time, the school, you know, all of those types of problems that we hear anecdotally. So we've asked the superintendent to, to get together with transportation and the facilities folks to come up with some solid recommendations for changing how we do business over transportation. And I, as the president said to my colleagues that now we have to take a look, if we're not going to do this, we're not gonna send our transportation to the ISD, we have to take a look at making a serious commitment to upgrading that fleet and maintaining that fleet. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge expense for the district um, and it's not it's not a requirement of the state that we provide transportation to general ed students, but we do it because we think it's important. We bus over 5,000 students a day. Those kids probably wouldn't make it to school on time, or if at all, if we didn't get them there. So now that we've decided that it's going to stay in-house, we have to find ways to 
trim the costs on how we do it, but also make sure that we're maintaining our fleet. Mm -hmm. Beyond the cost savings, are there other factors at play here uh, in this decision? I can't speak for everyone's decisions, but I also am, I'm, I'm comfortable with keeping our employees our employees. Under the ISD consortium arrangement, they become employees of the vendor. And, you know, the vendor chosen was Dean Transportation. Kelly Dean is a wonderful person and a great employer. Um, but I'm happy to keep those folks as our employees as well. I think, you know, we, we're not an employment agency by any means, but it certainly speaks volumes when you have those people that are working in your schools, they live in your community, they, you know, they develop those personal relationships with the families and the children that they transport daily. So there's there's some non-tangibles as well that are associated with the decision. But wouldn't Kelly's drivers, Kelly Dean's drivers, uh, do the same? The only difference would be who issues the paycheck. Absolutely. I, I'm not. I, I think that uh, Mr. Dean's got some great drivers as well, and that was not meant as a slight. But I think, you know, having that. Attachment to the Lansing School District means a lot to a lot of those folks. Are the drivers the from uh, the Lansing community? Many of them are. I don't have the percentages, but a lot of them that got up to the podium and spoke to us speak of their history. You know, they've graduated from the Lansing School District. They live here in Lansing. You know, they hope that their kids, are, you know, graduate from one of the high schools. And um, it was there was some very emotional testimony. And the decision, um, or, or lack thereof, decision <laughs> lack of decision, I guess, was not made lightly. Um, it was something I struggled with um, and really had to take a hard look at all the, uh, the, 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 the information and um, a lot of those intangibles I think were considered as well. Uh, well, there was a, uh, a report this week uh, issued by Bridge Magazine that was sort of a ranking of school districts um, around the state and how they performed. Uh, and, it, and it factored in uh, MEEP scores um, as well as uh, household income and, and how uh, you know, those two factors interact with each other. And, and Lansing was ranked pretty low in the list. Uh, but uh, if, if, if you're not particularly familiar with the, with the story, uh, can you tell us about um, how MEEP scores, uh, or what MEEP scores tell us about how schools are performing? Well, MEEP scores are what the state uses to adjust, to evaluate our performance and our ranking among the rest of the schools in the state. But MEEP scores are, MEEP scores are a snapshot of how a student is doing on a particular day on a particular test. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. We have to start also looking at student growth and how our students are growing. Because if you're looking at a fourth grade MEEP score, it's an evaluation of the third grade teacher um, in, in, in essence. So it doesn't tell us a lot and it doesn't inform a lot either because we get the scores late. Um, so we're hoping to work with, we've, we've brought in new classroom evaluation tools, iCollaborate, SNAP, where it's more of a collaborative evaluation of how the teacher's doing, how the students are doing, looking at um, individual student growth. We're still working on the growth models, and the state's also working on new growth models. Um, MEEP is, is a useful tool when it, for its intended purposes, but when we start talking about student growth, MEEP is not a student growth assessment. And you mentioned um, income level versus assessment scores. And I, I'm not familiar with the Bridge Magazine article that you're, that you're referencing, but there have been studies and reports just recently in Michigan that talk about um, how income, um, socioeconomic status and income levels relate to student achievement and student growth. And, and when you start looking at rankings and then put them together with economic status and, and poverty levels and free and reduced lunch levels in the school districts, you start seeing a stronger correlation with socioeconomic status than you do with you know, certain uh, geography or a certain school district. It all has to do 
so a lot of it has to do with the student's income level, the parents' education attainment, and those are some of the factors that we don't control in the school district. So we have to learn to understand those factors and how they affect our students, and then tailor our instruction and our you know our resources to addressing those issues. And I'll, I'll take a look at the bridge piece when, I, when we leave here, but um, I don't I haven't seen that one. Yet. Yeah, it it also mentions uh, it, it uh, talks to folks at Okemos Public Schools who rank highly on the list and they talk about how they have sort of these interventions with students when they see uh, you know performance might not be doing so, so well that it kind of becomes a hands-on sure. uh, experience with students. Is, does Lansing do anything like that? You know I am not sure of the day-to-day -day, you know if a student starts having attendance problems I know student services tries to be very proactive on those types of things we have policies about tardies and, and, and absences and grade level uh, I'm sorry marking period grades and those types of things where a teacher would step in or the student services would step in but as far as the day-to-day -day, I'm not entirely sure what you know what would happen if a student say started to show you know decline on their scores I'm sure we've got the teachers would take note and you begin to look at that mm -hmm. and speaking of uh, sort of dealing with performance issues uh, there, there have been reports that uh, this this momentum to sort of uh, increase the education achievement authority statewide are, are kind of uh, falling apart a little bit. And I, I saw recently there's been a report or, or an alternative suggestion uh, by a state legislator to get uh, intermediate school districts more involved uh, in terms of bringing levels back up. What what does the Lansing School District do? You, you, we talked about this during transportation, but does the does the school district work with the the intermediate school district uh, in terms of performance? <coughs> you know, yeah. traditionally the intermediate school district um, across the state and then ISDs in general rather mm -hmm. have been a tool for helping with uh, scale. So a smaller district can't necess doesn't necessarily have the resources, so the ISD helps bring them together and offer those types of services. Because Lansing has been so large compared to our, our sister districts in the ISD, we haven't taken advantage of a lot of ISD services. Um, I think that's one thing that this superintendent and this board have tried to, to demonstrate is a willingness to work more with the intermediate school district and try and get some of those things um, pushed out to the ISD level when we can. Um, we are not right now doing a lot with intervention from the ISD. As I know, they help us with our it's the, it's the P3 initiative, which deals with teen pregnancy and, and um, sex education and those types of things. But for now, um, I, as, as I understand it, we're not doing a lot with intervention specialists at the ISD. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. Uh, we are midway through our interview with Lansing School Board President Peter Spadafore. Let's get back to that now. One of the uh, sort of ongoing uh, challenges that, that the school district seems to face is school of choice and people sure. living in the city, sending their kids to outlying areas. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is uh, a topic that, you know, it just sort of hovers over the district. Uh, what, what can the school district be doing to uh, sort of stop that uh, sure. from happening? And a lot of that um, goes back to the facilities recommendations as well. Um, as I said, it was a comprehensive recommendation didn't just have to do with you know buildings and dollars and cents but offering more options you know our our Chinese immersion our Spanish immersion programs are, are wildly successful with our with our parents and students in the district we've got to try and expand those types of offerings to keep folks around at the high school level as well we have the only international baccalaureate program in, in the area those types of things are things we're looking at expanding 
offerings to attract folks. We also have a perception problem. You know, I'm not, I'm not living, I don't live in fantasy land where I think that there's no issues with, with the public image of Lansing School District. But I think we've brought in, our communications team is doing a much better job of um, regular newsletters that highlight the positives that are going on in Lansing School District. Um, you know, the school board's not as on the front page as often as we used to be, <laughs> so I think that's <laughs> helpful. Uh, we're working well <coughs> together as a team. Um, we don't have a lot of those um, issues anymore, and we're working now. I've asked Dr. Rodriguez on the school board to sit down with a few other school board members to create a committee to study our the climate and culture of the Lansing School District and make some recommendations on ways to improve um, sort of the attitudes, the climate of the students and, and the staff to an extent. So it's people want to go there. But I've um, heard a lot of change since in the last couple of years we've got a new superintendent, new management style, new, new, new attitude around the district. And it's not all roses and, and, and everything like that, but I think you're hearing folks that are more excited about going to work at Lansing, and you're hearing parents that are excited about the enthusiasm coming out of downtown and, and, and the buildings themselves. We still have our challenges. We still have to work on our achievement scores. We still have to work on our perception, but we're making progress. This is an enormous ship we're trying to, we're trying to turn around in the middle of the ocean, and um, I think we're getting there, but we still have our challenges. And I think when we start to address those challenges, the perception of Lansing will change, and you'll start to see more folks choosing Lansing. I think we have over 4,000 kids that live in the Lansing School District that go somewhere else. Um, that's a significant part of our population, and that's a significant dollar amount when you start talking about school of choice. Uh, for every student we, we don't have that's, that, that's one of ours, so to speak, it's over $7,000 that we have to find uh, or cut. Mm -hmm. So I think um, once we start to address those issues, a lot of our issues will go away because we'll have the resources we need if people start to choose choose Lansing again and um, that's what our hope is and that's what part of the facilities is too. You know, you go to Okemos or you go to Holt, you go to Waverly, they all have newer facilities. Bricks and mortar are not what educate our kids. I've said that a hundred times if I've said it once. But there is an attitude and a perception of walking into a building that demonstrates that your school district cares about you. And I think that's something we have neglected far too long. Bro mentioned it. Um, maintenance has not been our strong suit on these facilities. and, and I've only been here a few years, and I can't. I don't want to speak about other boards and other administrations' priorities, but it should be a priority to maintain those facilities because they've got to last for years. Lansing School District's never going away. It's going to be here, and it's going to be a stronger district if we if, if I if I have my way. <laughs> but <laughs> so um, y y yes, we have to do better with schools of choice. Um, I think we we bring in 300 or so right now from outside districts. Um, how do we look to address the concerns of folks that are choosing to leave? How do we get them to stay? Do you know how many students uh, who live in the district go to outside schools? It's over 4,000. Over uh, 4,000. The Department of Education, I, I think at one time it was around five, but we've seen populations decrease, birth rates go down. So I th it's over four at this point. Okay. Since we're talking about resources, uh, Democrats are uh, criticizing uh, Governor Snyder for supposedly cutting fund per pupil funding. Sure. Uh, the governor says that's not true. He's simply shifted it to um, uh, other categories as, as to free up money to put into uh, the, the per pupil funding. Uh, help us understand this. What, what is the truth here? Well, I think the truth is what you want it to be in this <coughs> case. But um, one factor that we're not also talking about is the declining student population in the state. 
So yes, per pupil funding might have gone up, but the pot of money has gone down. It's just being spread over fewer number of pupils. And that's one of our biggest challenges in Lansing is the pupil count. So if you cut per pupil funding, whether it's at the foundation level or at categorical levels, or if you even if you increase it across categoricals, and they might not be categoricals the Lansing School District receives, if you're following what I'm saying. So if we lose 100 kids across the 13,000 student district with 27 buildings, we can't change our operations very much. Our bus still drives by that house. The temperature still maintains around 70 degrees in the winter, um, you know, boilers willing. <laughs> um, but all of those things, they don't change that much. We can't lay off a, t a teacher because those 20 kids didn't come from first grade classroom at Luton Elementary, which is now fourth through sixth, but you get my point. Mm -hmm. They came from across the district. So although we lost 20, 100, uh, I'm sorry, 20, 20 FTEs, and the funding that goes with it. We didn't change our operations. So that's part of the conversation that's not being discussed is the pupil counts have gone down as well. So whether you've increased the funding or not, if we're losing pupils, the money is, is not going to be pouring in at the same rate. So if you increase it by you know $5 per pupil across the foundation and the categoricals, it's a very small increase. Because you have fewer pupils. Because we have fewer pupils. And that's happening statewide as well. So what should we look at? Uh, if we shouldn't look at uh, how much the state provides per pupil, what, what is a good measure to look at? Well, I think, you know, you can look at a lot of different factors. Our operating budget is one way to look at it. The whole school aid fund divided out over the number of pupils is a good way to look at it. Um, and I, math is very hard for me, so let's <laughs> not, I'm not going to try to do $13 billion over 1.4 million kids, but it is, there's a lot of factors at play. And, and Yes, education funding, we st we're still reeling from the per-pupil cut that we took a few years back. You know, that was not helpful. Um, the increase in funding, a lot of it has come to offset the costs of the state retirement system that the school district pays. We pay for every employee that is part of our um, the state employee retirement system. We pay approximately 26% of their salary back to the state to accommodate for that um, retirement system. The state has switched that on us a little bit now. They capped that our amount around 24-25%, and then any additional fund, any additional costs come off the top of the school aid fund. That's it's not a bait and switch. It's just a money switch. It's do we get the money first and send it back, or does the money go right to the retirement system? That's something that is not often talked about. It's 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 hard. It's complicated. What's easy to understand is the per, the foundation allowance, and it's just much more complicated than that. Our budget, yes, we've trimmed the budget. I think we did 20 million last year. 18 to 20 million a year before, uh, it's it's not we're not just handing out money left and right here at Lansing. We're 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 finding it in in the cracks, the couch cushions, you know, yeah. as as best we can. And that was one of the why reasons we looked at the transportation option because it was an option to um, save some dollars, short term and, and a little bit long term. So um, I won't get into the debate as to whether you know the Democrats are right or the Republicans are right. All I know is we're not supporting school funding the way we should in the state. And we need to start looking at putting more resources into K through 12 education, um, especially in districts like Lansing, where we have a lot of outlying factors that that contribute to our success or failure. Would you get into grading the governor uh, on his uh, uh, on how the state has treated public education? I think they've they've done a good job of trying to make it a priority, but I don't know that they've got the right priorities. EAA is not something. I, you know, we can't do business with the... What is EAA? I'm sorry, the Education Achievement Authority. Mm -hmm. uh, the constant threat of state takeover of our buildings is not useful. 
um, it's not helpful. What would be helpful is putting that energy and those resources into intervention methods to help urban districts like Lansing turn our scores around, give our students the resources they need. Um, I, I think we need to look at a lot of options that really focus on treating the um, sort of the, the disease, the illness, not, not the symptoms. You know, failures, uh, low, low test scores is a symptom of something else, and how do we fix that, that illness? And that's something we need to be focusing on and not, not that threat of takeover. All right, we have less than two minutes. He, he spent uh, several years working uh, in the legislature with the Michigan Association of School Boards. What, uh, in your time there, what was your sense of legislators' grasp of public school issues? Well, everyone's an expert in education because they went through school. <laughs> I've actually heard legislators tell me that. I will, I'm not a teacher, but I've, I did go to school. And, you know, I won't give names on that one. But <laughs> it, it, is, it is something that you feel very intimately attached to. And legislators, it, it's a very huge priority for, you know, parents, community members, all those folks. But there's a reason there are experts in the field. Those experts understand the nuances of um, of testing, of, of, of instruction, of what it means if we're out of school for six more days this year and, and not making those up for, for snow days. Um, local control has been a, a huge issue for this state. Um, Lansing, chief among them, we were used to sort of having the district be in the hands of the school board, the administration. And now with so much money, so much policy coming out of the capital, it's becoming, it's a, it's a hard battle to fight. So. My, my advice and hope would be that legislators take more of a broad stroke of look at what we do in public schools and provide the resources to the, the experts in the field to really do what they need to do. All right, well, we are about out of time. I want to thank uh, Peter Spada for the new president of the Lansing Board of Education for being on City Pulse Newsmakers today. Andy Belaskovitz, thanks for uh, being here today. We'll be back uh, next week at this time. I hope you have a great Sunday, and uh, hope to see you then. Good morning. You're listening to Impact Exposure. And that's our show for the evening. You've been listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Andy Belaskovitz, Managing Editor of Lansing's Alternative Weekly. I'd like to thank all of our guests uh, this week, Peter Spadafore of the Lansing School Board, Terry Terry uh, of Message Makers, and Old Town act, local theater actor and director Michael Schockerbauer, and uh, Lansing uh, Police Captain Daryl Green. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89FM.